Minus 15. Respect all, fear none. Into the upper deck. Intensity is not a perfume. Oh my goodness. Five, four, three, two, one. And welcome on in to the Masson All Access Podcast. Tim Leonard, Paul Mancano, happy to be back with you for our final draft episode. Yes. Kind of sad, Paul. Putting a a cap on this whole thing, Tim. It's it's come and gone. We had the All-Star break. We're now sort of getting into trade deadline mindset. I'm sure you'll be on with Brendan Mortensen later in the week talking all about the trade deadline. But we got to put a cap on the draft. It's... A little bittersweet, I think, because it was a rush of a lot of content and a lot of work for us. But also, it's kind of sad that the draft has come and gone. It is. Uh, I mean, this is such a busy time. The fact that they moved the draft into July, because it used to be back in June, it makes all of these things happen at once. It's like rapid fire. We can't even rest after the draft. we got to start, right. like you said, it's got to start getting ready for trade deadline. And like Michael Elias was actually saying a couple weeks ago that he thinks that front offices have to focus a lot of their attention on the draft in mid-July, and so they then can't focus as much on trades, which makes sense. You can't be, you know, splitting all your efforts like this. So now I think we're going to get a lot of crazy trade movement over the next, I guess, how many days until the trade deadline? Six days. Yeah, it's coming up quick, and it's interesting, too, because we don't have all the draft signings yet, and I'm sure Brad Selick and the whole staff is still working around the clock on that. So it feels like it's almost too crammed together. You feel for the people that are making those decisions, but we have until, I think it's August 1st, is when everyone has to be signed, and that's the deadline for that. We have found out since we talked on the podcast about Jackson Holiday's reported figure and also that Dylan Beavers and Judd Fabian have signed. Those two came to Oriole Park. They did some BP. We were there as they chatted and did an interview as well, which was cool to see. But let's start with the Jackson Holiday news because it comes out that his reported figure is $8.19 million here. And I think it's an underslot deal, as we expected. The slot value for the number one overall pick is right around $8.8 million. Hardly anyone ever goes for the full slot value at number one. It's very rarely happened. And you also got to factor in that this year there was maybe not a clear-cut number one. So I think we all expected it to be underslot. The value of $8.19 million was just a little bit higher than Drew Jones's value. So... I think it to me it sort of was what I expected the value to be, what is reported, and also it just sort of proves to me that they really view Jackson Holiday as the number one overall player on their big board. And just because Drew Jones signed for slightly, very slightly, like about ten thousand dollars or so less than Jackson Holiday at number two overall with the Arizona Diamondbacks does not, to me, mean that the Orioles could have gotten Drew Jones at that price point had they taken him number one overall. It's such a strange business, and it's so different from the NFL draft, from the ML, or from the NBA draft, because you have to keep this as close to your chest as possible going up until the day of. Michael I said they decided that morning, essentially, that Jackson Holiday was the guy for them, and it often takes until seconds before the pick is in right. <laughs> for them to finish negoti- negotiating with the agents. And right now, those those terms are reported, and you know he hasn't put pen to paper, but essentially that's all that's waiting. But they have the, de- the major deals figured out there. But to me, so for Drew Jones, I don't think that... I think if the Orioles had tipped their hand, if they were really interested in Drew Jones, and they had tipped their hand that he was their guy... 
my guess is that Drew Jones would have asked for more money and that right. they would not have been able to get him for that amount of money. And again, the, a lot of this stuff is inside the negotiating room, and I don't know the details of that, and they will never explain the details of that. But just because Holiday signed for a tiny bit more than Drew Jones does not mean that the Orioles could have gotten Drew Jones for that for the number that he signed with the Diamondbacks. Well, you'd also, you also have to factor in that Drew Jones probably had more leverage when he was discussing with the Orioles than he would have when he was discussing with the Diamondbacks because the Diamondbacks clearly wanted him, and that was yeah. out there. So if you're Drew Jones and you're Scott Boris's agent and you're talking to the Orioles, you have to be using that chip and saying, hey, well, if we don't go number one, then this team right behind you is going to take him for a good slot value pick number two, almost guaranteed. So whereas when he doesn't go number one and then he's going number two, the Diamondbacks then have a little bit more leverage on their side than the Orioles did. And same with Jackson Holiday. Part of the reason that the Orioles were able to get him under slot is because if the Orioles didn't take him, then the and the Orioles didn't take Drew Jones and they went with somebody else. Right. Drew Jones goes two. You're talking about Jackson Holiday, probably third overall to the Texas Rangers, in which case he's losing a lot more money because the slot value drops significantly between one and three. Yeah, and I think one point, you know, we did the draft podcast after the first night, and it was around midnight, and we were sort of loopy and had fun doing it, and we reacted to some of the picks then. One point that I think we both agree we probably could have hit on more during that podcast was the fact that the hit tool for Jackson Holiday being a major factor in this decision for the yeah. Orioles, and I don't think we can overstate that, right? Because Brad Selick comes on this podcast, and he talks about how I'd have to go with the bat if we're talking about one tool and how that is the tool that stands out because if you can hit, you'll find a spot on a roster. Not that Drew Jones's hit tool wasn't good, but Jackson Holiday had a little more safety to the hit tool. And that's why originally I thought maybe they'll take Tamar Johnson because of his outstanding hit tool. But I think the mix in Holiday's floor and ceiling was a little bit better than Tamar. I think it's... Not to oversimplify it, but it's as simple as you can't have a designated fielder. Yeah. You can have a designated <laughs> right. hitter. You can't have a designated fielder. And you see so many teams invest so much into these hitters. And because now that the NL also has a de has a DH, the universal DH is there, you can find room in a lineup for these guys. And you see guys who are, have minimal defensive value. Like, I think of the Kyle Schwarber and Nick Castellanos getting these massive deals in the offseason. Guys that are probably below average outfielders, corner outfielders, so not even a premium position. So these kind of deals get handed out to guys who they believe can maybe transition into being their designated hitter long term. And you talk about the floor and the ceiling with these kind of guys, and perhaps the floor, the ceiling is slightly higher for Drew Jones because the defense is already so elite that if he gets the bat up to speed, then you're talking about somebody who is a perennial all-star. But perhaps the floor was a little bit lower. Perhaps the floor is, if he doesn't hit as much as is expected and his bat doesn't progress at the same rate that his defense does, then you're talking about a gold glove center fielder, but somebody who just doesn't have the offensive numbers to stick in a major league roster, and maybe he's a fourth outfielder. Maybe he's a Michael A. Taylor type, somebody who just kind of has to be known for his defense 
and what he gives you offensively is extra. So not that he's going to be that, that right. Drew Jones is, I'm not trying to pigeonhole him there, but I'm saying maybe that's the floor, whereas Jackson Holiday having a 60-hit tool as opposed to a 55, it's a small difference, but perhaps that was what swayed the Orioles that Holiday was the guy to go to. Yeah, and there's less question marks about Holiday's swing, maybe, and right. I think that's a factor as well. To put it simply, I think if they had taken Drew Jones, number one, it would have been an exception in terms of taking a guy with a high draft pick under Mike Elias that his question mark is the hit tool. Right. Not that it was a huge question mark, but the hit tool has always been something that they've been very clearly focusing on. And we're going to talk about their overall draft philosophy and what stood out from this particular draft. But you look at any of the four drafts under Mike Elias, they value that hit tool. They value college bats that have a little more safetyness and a little more numbers behind it. I know Jackson Holiday was a high school hitter, but I think that's why initially we were of the camp that I'll see it, I'll believe it when I see it with Drew Jones right. when they take him. Because the hit tool, if it was a 70 hit tool, then I think they probably would have taken Drew Jones. But I do believe that they view Jackson Holiday as the top player on their draft board. It was probably very close. I think even Brooks Lee was probably pretty close to Jackson Holiday in their evaluation. Just an educated guess, but... I think given the whole package, that's why they went with Holiday. And you never go with a player based off what your current roster says or what your current farm system needs because it's too difficult to predict what your farm system is going to be like in a couple of years, what your major league roster is going to be like in a couple of years. But I will say that the Orioles are very clearly flush with quality defensive center fielders both at the major league level and center in Cedric Mullins. They have Austin Hayes, who can also play center. They have Ryan McKenna, who can also play center. And in the minors, where you have Colton Kowser, who they continue to play in center. They expect him to be a center fielder going forward. So I don't think that was a huge factor in the decision by any stretch. But, you know, perhaps the fact that Jackson Holiday plays shortstop. I know they have Gunner and they have Jordan Westberg, but maybe there's a hole at shortstop if you move Westberg to, to second base. You move Gunner over to third base. So maybe that had some small factor in this. Yeah. As for what is next for Jackson Holiday, it's a later draft than normal. He's a young high school guy. We'll see. I'm I'm of the camp that I don't think he'll play at Delmarva this year. Um, obviously, the Orioles will probably introduce him here at Camden Yards very soon, hopefully yeah. maybe this week, and he'll do the press conference and get to meet some of the fans and maybe do BP. But after that... Do you see him getting to Delmarva this year? I don't because you look at what Gunnar Henderson did a few years ago, and he didn't go to Delmarva when he was a young high school player, very talented in 2019, but they kept him in Florida for the entire year. Yeah, and I don't think there's really any reason to rush him along. It's probably going to be the case for a lot of these top draft prospects just because it was a later draft as well. Maybe a Kamar Rocker at number three and knowing what the Rangers did with Jack Leiter as well, maybe he will jump right to double A, honestly. I I could see him being an exception, but outside of that, I feel like there's some high school guys up there, younger guys. We're not going to see a lot of guys go to a low A very quickly. Maybe the Orioles would do that, though, with the Dylan Beavers or a Judd Fabian. I could see that more likely than Jackson Holiday, which doesn't really mean anything other than they're just older and further along in the process. Yeah, in 2021, we obviously saw Colton Kowser and Connor Norby get moved up together with almost their entire draft class because they were all 20, 21, 22 years old. John Rhodes was part of that. So they got moved up together from Florida. They literally drove up the East Coast <laughs> up to Delmarva 
uh, with about a month left in the minor league season. We could see a similar migration like that, but I don't think Jackson Holiday will be a part of that just because he's so young. And we may see something similar to what we saw, how Kobe Mayo, who was a 2020 draftee, and I know that he didn't have a minor league season in 2020, but he was lumped in with the 2021 guys because they wanted him to get a little bit more seasoning. And so he is still a younger guy compared to them. However, they wanted to stick him with some veterans, give him a little bit more time in Florida, then move him up. So maybe we see something like that where we see Jackson Holiday get lumped in with the 2023 guys. Or we could see him move up a little bit faster because he does, he will have a good portion of the minor league season to be able to get an exposure to pro ball. Yeah. Well, speaking of Dylan Beavers and Judd Fabian, they came to Oriole Park at Camden Yards. We were there for their batting practice. We didn't get a chance to talk about Judd Fabian when we were doing the late night, first night of the draft recap episode, which I think Judd Fabian was taken a little around midnight or a little after midnight. It's crazy how long the the draft went. I don't know if there's a way to restructure that. But anyway, that's another topic. We were kind of bummed because right after we got off the air during that podcast, we realized they took Jed Fabian. We're like, oh, that would have been a, a fun pick to react to live because yeah. of what happened last year. And for those that aren't totally familiar or don't remember, he was a guy that the Orioles definitely wanted last year and were looking at early in the second round last year with an overslot selection. The pick before the Orioles pick, which was, was it number 41. 42? 41. Orioles had 42. Orioles had 42. At pick 41, Judd Fabian went to the Boston Red Sox. And interesting hearing Judd Fabian say during his press conference yesterday that it they, he had never talked to the Boston Red Sox when they made that selection last year. So the Orioles wanted him last year. They didn't get him. He returns to school after not agreeing to terms with the Red Sox, and now they get him at number 67 overall in that competitive balance round pick this go-around. Yeah, it was somebody... He he was pretty eye-opening to hear him talk about the fact that the Red Sox took him without talking to him. Yeah. And so it, it sounds like the Orioles had a pretty large figure in mind for Judd Fabian, and they let his camp know that. And if he got to the 42nd overall pick, they easily would have snapped him up and would have given them that overslot pick. And he was sounded a little bit miffed that the Red Sox took him with the 41st overall pick. If he had just lasted one more pick, he would have gotten a pretty hefty deal and he ends up going back to school and losing a significant amount of money because he improved statistically, Tim, but probably not enough. And that's why we saw him fall down draft boards. That's why he was taken a lot later this year than he was last year. He's an intriguing prospect, and I think another reason why he went back to school is because his brother was a freshman. He's been pretty vocal about that. He played at Florida, played third base, his younger brother this past year. So he wanted to play with his brother, so that was probably a contributing factor as well. But he also just didn't have the sophomore season that he was hoping for. His strikeout rate was 29%. As a sophomore, he's talked about how he made a swing change in between freshman and sophomore year, And he started trying to pull the ball and hit for more power. And it didn't lead to the results that he wanted. So then he kind of went back to, all right, I'm going to hit to all fields. I'm not going to worry too much about pulling the ball. And he started to hit better this past year. His walk rate went up from 15% to 20% from sophomore to junior year. His strikeout rate went down from 29% to 22%. So we're talking about a guy that was just a couple less walks than strikeouts as a junior. The stats went up, but I think he still lost some value overall because he was a year older, and that changes how the models view you. Once you're a year older, it's just tougher to 
raise your draft stock at that point. You have to get so exponentially better from yeah. year to year, unfortunately, because your age is such a factor in this. And the older you get, the less likable you are. That's why we we thought Kumar Rocker especially would fall a lot lower than third overall because he was a year older and he wasn't exponentially better. But that's unfortunately the nature of it. And yes, he did get better. But I'd like to see how much better he can get now that he's in the Orioles system. And I know that, you know, taking him a lot later is kind of like having your cake and eating it too. But he's not viewed as highly as he was a year ago. So the Orioles clearly took that into account. It's not like they jumped on him with the 33rd overall pick or with the pick in their 40s. They waited and took him with the 67th overall pick. So there were guys on their board that given an extra year of sample size, they said, you know what, this guy's actually a little bit better. Max Wagner, he's a better prospect right now than Jordan right. Fabian. Yeah, it's interesting because he's got the power and a little bit of the speed as well. He's supposed to be a very solid defender. Dylan Beavers also kind of power speed. That's something that it seems like the Orioles have a philosophy for. Analytics will make that type of categories pop over time. So I think... Knowing what we know now, I'm sure the Orioles are happy that they ended up getting Judd Fabian this go-around, and now he's in their system. He feels like a guy that has a very high ceiling, considering that once upon a time he was thought of as a top-10 overall prospect, maybe. And there were discussions going into his sophomore year that maybe the Orioles will target him with the number 5 pick that ended up being Colton Kowser. So he slipped a little bit because he's gotten older, but there's still power and there's still some really high defensive potential there as well. Definitely. It's building up the middle, and he is a legit center fielder, at least it was in college, and the hope is they're probably going to keep him there for the time being. So the hope is that you are build yourself up the middle with a shortstop in Jackson Holiday, and then you take some guys who can play a legit center field, and we heard good stuff about Dylan Beaver's ability to play center as well. So where they stick these guys, I think is going to be interesting. It's a similar conversation that we had at this point last year of how do you fit these guys all in a roster? Maybe the fact that we have some differences in age makes it a little bit easier, but I could see them starting all these guys down at the Florida Complex League, and then maybe, like you were saying earlier, you move a Judd Fabian, Max Wagner, Dylan Beavers up together to Delmarva, and we get a chance to see them on the same roster and where they fit defensively. Right, and Max Wagner hasn't been signed yet, but maybe we'll find out about that news. In the I kind of think he might be an overslot candidate just because he's a draft-eligible sophomore. Coming off a good year, maybe because he's still young, he might be more inclined to go back. Dylan Beaver signed for a little bit under slot, which I think is also because he, I guess he's, he's still a 20-year-old, so he's still on the younger side, but he had been through three years of college ball, so it's a little bit different when you're evaluating prospects and the likelihood of underslot, overslot in yeah. that sense. And I think there's a difference between what the Orioles did with Jackson Holiday, where they drafted somebody and signed him underslot, underslot by 652,000, roughly. There's a difference between that and what the Astros did with Correa. And I think we sometimes lump underslot signings together. Right. But the Correa signing was several million dollars underslot. The Kumar Rocker. Uh, drafting and signing was several million dollars under slot because the hope is that you float a guy. So similar to what the Orioles did last year with Kowser, which was a lot more under slot than Jackson Holiday was, was they were hoping to float a Judd Fabian to them. And it didn't work because a team can, like the Red Sox, can come and snatch that guy up before he gets to you. But sometimes it does work. Like the the fact that the 
Rangers were able to get maybe the best arm in the class yeah. in a high school pitcher later on in the draft. Brock much, Porter, yeah. Yeah, right. Brock Porter much later than he would have gone because they went so dramatically under slot with Kumar Rocker. So there's a difference between under slot by 652000 which is what the Orioles did with Jackson Holiday. That's just a bargain, but it's not a taking a much less talent at you know, five, six million dollars as opposed to eight point four eight million. Right. Yeah. So as for day two and three of the draft, I think the headline from that point on was kind of the Orioles diving into pitching a lot more and maybe not. I mean, they took 12 pitchers out of 22 picks last year. They took nine pitchers out of 20 picks. So the volume overall is not a huge deviation from what we've seen under Michael Elias, Brad Selick and that regime, but taking pitchers a little bit earlier than we've seen in the past. Nolan McLean is a two-way guy, but he is probably going to be a pitcher. It seems like they have, yeah. that's the priority for him at this point. And he was taken in the third round, fifth pick that the Orioles took, but third round guy, that's the highest they've ever taken a potential pitcher under Michael Elias. Five of the first 10 rounds or five players in the first 10 rounds were pitchers. So we're seeing them go for pitchers a little bit earlier than we expected. And I think I sort of expected that going into this draft just because of how the farm system is now and how much depth there is to the farm system. Pitchers, in my opinion, I think most analytics would agree, are a little bit more riskier to take than position players early in the draft. Now that the Orioles have built up the farm system more, they're maybe more apt to taking pitchers earlier on than they would have, you know, in the first couple of years. Yeah, when they were building this thing from scratch, they wanted to take the safest guys so that they could build up the talent level overall. And that meant, according to their models, taking a lot of position players. We heard Brad Selick talk about on the couch, Flex, that the uh, <laughs> Orioles, you know, that they have their models determine how much risk is involved with these players. And when you're talking about pitchers, you're often talking about not just the risk that their talent won't turn into what they expect, but also that injuries occur because injuries are a major factor when it comes to pitchers. And yes, injuries can affect position players, but the elephant in the room is Tommy John. The Orioles took Carter Baumler in the 2020 draft and had high hopes for him. And unfortunately, due to no fault of anybody's, he had Tommy John and was set back. And the hope is that he can get back to the pitcher that they thought that he they were getting when they drafted him. But Tommy John is a big, significant injury that is affecting a lot of pitchers. And when you're taking somebody with a high pick, a third, fourth, fifth round pick, you want to make sure that you hit on this guy. You want to be hitting doubles. You don't want to be swinging for the fences when you're trying to build what was maybe the bottom five farm system in all of baseball into the number two or number one farm system. So what they did was they went with safe picks. They took position players, guys that, yes, they can incur injuries, but the injuries are not going to be debilitating and they're not going to set back their careers as much as they would for a pitcher. You can't afford to miss on high picks as much as they can now when they were first starting out this process. They needed to capitalize on the draft. They needed to get as many players, as many volume contributors as they could from the draft. Now we're at the point where I do think there was slightly a change in philosophy this year in regards to pitching and really just overall their thought process on the draft because Brad Selig has mentioned in interviews that, you know, we – just viewed the pitchers as the top guys on our board. It wasn't necessarily anything different. But 
he hinted at that they liked some pitchers in the first day, and he sort of joked, I promise we did have some pitchers on our board that day. Yeah. Didn't work out. You guys aren't going to believe me, but we were thinking about some pitchers on the first day. So I wouldn't be surprised if going forward in next year's draft, they take a pitcher in the third or second round, and they continue to kind of lean more into this philosophy now that they are better equipped to take pitchers and take riskier selections early in the draft. Right, and it's not like they took monumental swings yep. on these these pitchers that they took in this draft. Like you said, Nolan McLean was their fifth player taken in the third round. So it's not like they, we are not close to them taking a pitcher with the number one overall pick or taking a pitcher with their first round pick next year. Maybe it'll happen, but I think that it would probably have to come after Michael Elias determining that the farm system is in desperate need of pitchers, perhaps, and that they feel like he is the best player available to them and that they're so comfortable with the depth that they have in their farm system already that they're okay incurring the risk of taking a pitcher that high. It's just, it's a big risk. Yeah, the other thing to philosophy-wise that I think was slightly different this year is they might not sign all these guys compared to what the... I mean, they signed every player they drafted out yeah. of the 20 selections last year. They drafted 22 players this year. Brad Selick said he's a little bit less optimistic that they'll sign every single player as opposed to previous years. But I think when your farm system's more built up, you can take chances on potential overslot guys or trying to convince guys later in the draft. I look at Carter Young, the shortstop out of Vanderbilt, who was a top 250 overall prospect. Walters, the pitcher out of Miami, was number 130 on MLB Pipeline. Yeah, He was drafted with, I think, the 572nd overall pick. So clearly, he's not going to sign unless he gets an overslot selection, we can probably assume. And the Orioles probably viewed it as, all right, we've got a little more uh, volume in our farm system than we have in previous drafts. So we can take a chance on some of these later round players that could really pan out. If we agree to a good deal here, you're getting a steal at that point. Yeah. What did the Orioles do last year? They signed every single one of their draft picks. They had 21 draft picks and they signed all 21. The Orioles may not sign all 21 this year, but that's okay. Most teams usually don't. The Orioles may have been the only team. I'm not positive on this. That's very signed. rare. Yeah. It's very rare that they, well, especially because you know, the draft is now 20 rounds. It makes it a little bit easier. Never, before were you able to sign all 40 or 41 guys back when the draft was that long because you would end up taking high school guys with like the last 10 rounds. But now that the draft is 20 rounds, it's a little bit more doable, but like you said, incredibly rare. And so the Orioles very clearly had that goal in mind last year when they took those 21 guys is we're going to sign all these guys because we need depth more than anything else. They don't have the same need for depth. And the fact that they are taking some bigger swings on pitching the fact that they're taking some bigger swings on guys that may have to be over slot if they're going to be signed means that they feel comfortable with their depth. They're trying to get a little bit better talent because if they lose one or two guys here or there over the course of a 20-round draft, that's okay. You just want to be able to sign as many of these guys as you can to what you want to sign them for. Yeah, and I'm very happy with them sticking to their philosophy of we're not going to reach for a pitcher early on in the process that's risky because they're sticking to what the analytics would tell them. Right. And they have a staff there. And Brad Selick, when he came on this podcast, talked a lot about how pitchers at the top of the draft are a little bit more risky than position players, according to the analytics they've done. So don't deviate from that just because of right. positional need. I mean, 
we've seen a lot of teams go for pitchers early on. I know famously the Angels drafted only pitchers last year with every single selection in yeah. the draft. They threw a no-hitter, as Cespedes family barbecue <laughs> yeah, says. That's right. That's a good joke. I hadn't heard that one. Yeah. But uh, it sure, like maybe fans want more pitching now because it seems like the bats are a little more stocked than pitchers are right. in the given state of the farm system. I agree with that, and I think they're sort of hinting at that by taking guys a little bit earlier, but they also believe in their developmental system with pitchers. They believe in kind of the secret sauce, as Brad Selig talked about, and what they use to identify pitchers and the analytics that have helped them get to that conclusion. So they clearly like a guy that has high-velocity fastball. It seems like that's been a trademark of some of their pitcher picks throughout the drafts under Michael Elias and this regime, but... You stick to your process is kind of the overall thinking here. I don't think just because you might not have, your pitchers might be lagging behind a little bit, it doesn't mean that you, you know, start drafting pitchers first and second round. You you stick to the analytics. And this is a multifaceted approach that they're taking to pitching. And I think a lot of people, especially last year, got hung up on the fact that they didn't take many pitchers on days one and two. They took Carlos Tavera, and he was just about it for days one and two last year. And they were looking at the farm system and saying, yes, you have D.L. Hall and Grayson Rodriguez, but beyond those guys, where is the pitching? And especially you were looking at the big league roster and saying, the pitching is pretty bad right now, and it's a different case this year. So far, a lot of these guys are figuring some stuff out. We're seeing some of their young pitchers turn the corner. We're seeing some more guys debut. We're seeing guys like Dean Kramer and you know have success of turning those corners. And then we're seeing a Kyle Bradish come up and, and have success as well. So you're seeing it at the big league level that helps. And also this is just one step in this process because you, the draft is one way to acquire talent. So are trades and so is free agency. And there's a reason that the Orioles move back. The left field wall is to be able to sign. Right. pitchers. So I think that all of this is kind of building towards the Orioles going the way of the Astros. When Michael Elias was part of that front office, which is trading which is developing your own guys through the system, your own pitchers, like a Lance McCullers Jr., trading for pitchers, and also going out and being able to spend big-time money on pitchers as well. So it's a multifaceted approach, and the Orioles are clearly building up their farm system in terms of position players. And if they have to go out and sign a free agent pitcher to a massive $60, $100 million deal, guess what? They have the money to do that because they have young, controllable position players in their system. Or if they have to trade for a pitcher, they can trade from this wealth of position player prospects to go and get that guy. Yeah, and I also think, not to make this a discussion about the Orioles, because I know this is more of a draft podcast, but when you look at next year's potential rotation, Mm -hmm. it's not that far off. I mean, things might happen injuries-wise, like John Means hopefully comes back and he's healthy. Hopefully Grayson Rodriguez is healthy. We don't exactly know how good D.L. Hall is going to be when he comes up, how long it's going to take. We don't know if Kyle Bradish is going to be even better next year or make uh, huge strides, but... When you have the conversation of they really need pitching, sometimes then when I think about the rotation, it kind of makes me think, oh, maybe maybe the pitching isn't that much of a need. If they added a free agent pitcher this year, which I think is not unlikely at this point, I could see it happening based on the left field wall and everything. The pitching is, in my opinion, if anything, a little bit closer than maybe the overall fan would think. And also pitching is so hot and cold and... 
that's why it's maybe a little bit easier to trade for pitchers and not build pitchers up to the farm system because of injuries and everything. Right. Uh, not to hijack this podcast, Tim, but I'm curious <laughs> uh, now that we have kind of gone through the Orioles, another top selection spend four years now, 19, 20, 21, 22, that they've had a top five pick. And we're looking at a team right now that is a game below 500. We're probably not going to be having this kind of level of coverage for the draft going forward because it won't be as important as the big league team and especially the higher levels of the minors as well behind that. And the Orioles won't be picking nearly as high. These picks won't be as important. Do you feel like when you look back at the four drafts that Mike Elias made, that he maximized those four years to be able to acquire the top talent that he needed to when he had those top five picks? Absolutely. I mean, I I don't see how you could be knocking what they've done in the draft to this point. And I do think that this year, the Jackson Holiday pick, if it was the first year under this regime, maybe they would have gone Brooksley. Maybe they would have gone more under slot. But I do feel like this being maybe the last draft that they will hopefully pick high for quite a while it may have changed their philosophy a little bit. Holiday has a high ceiling, and that was kind of my whole thing with who will they take number one. I just want one of the guys that has a high ceiling right. because this is the last time you're probably going to pick number one for a very long time. And Michael Elias talked about not just that picking number one means you get the number one player, but also you get the biggest draft pool, and it was the second largest in history because of the competitive balance round picks as well. So when you add that all in, they really had to nail this draft, and I'm very happy with what they put together here. Absolutely, and I think that Michael Elias knew that it was a w- especially weighty pick with number one overall. He was not even, he said he, you don't like picking number one for a lot of reasons because of the kind of pressure that comes with that kind of pick. So now that the Orioles are, are going to be kind of shifting their focus, I feel like, I think that the, the draft will still remain a huge portion of team building, but they're going to be changing their focus a little bit, I think, towards acquiring talent via trade and via free agency. And it's going to be, this may be kind of the end of a chapter here. I know. In terms of, <laughs> of the, this rebuild. And it doesn't feel like it right now. But, you know, the Orioles are turning the corner on the big league roster, on the big league field. And we're starting to see more guys debut from the minors. So I, it's going to be interesting to see where this front office kind of diverts its attention going forward because this is clearly we've seen Michael Elias be able to draft talent can he have the same kind of success when it comes to acquiring talent via trade acquiring big league talent via trade we've seen him get great prospects via trade yeah but can he win those kind of trades and can he sign the right free agents Right. It's it's fascinating. It is kind of a new era at this point. And also, I think the draft lottery being involved in the coming years, it makes it so that, you know, teams might not be as likely to get the number one overall pick when they tank for that pick and so on. So you add that into the folds. They had to capitalize on this draft. And I think they definitely did an excellent job before we get out of here. Let's talk about some of the intriguing prospects that they did select. We mentioned Nolan McLean, who is really intriguing because he could be a two-way player. Brad Selick said that they will give him some opportunity at DH. The priority, though, is to develop him as a pitcher because he does have some nasty stuff as a pitcher. He was mostly a reliever, I think strictly a reliever, at Oklahoma State. Also played third base, hit 19 homers, and there's definitely some appeal there as a two-way guy, but there's also a ton of appeal as a pitcher as well when you look at his stuff. Yeah, we've seen two-way guys 
be successful in one side or the other. We saw uh, Michael Givens was a shortstop converted into a pitcher. So the Orioles previous front office, but they had some success with that kind of stuff. I do worry about two-way guys. And I think that's partly why two-way guys just don't get drafted as high typically is because you have to pick one eventually. Yeah. And you can be pretty good at both things, but you have to be really good at one thing, you know, because odds are you're not going to stick unless you're Shohei Otani. <laughs> he is the only exception to the rule or, you know, Michael Lorenzen. Then you have to be really good at either hitting or pitching. So it sounds like the Orioles are going to use him as a pitcher for the most part, but he did have a 992 OPS. And <laughs> yeah. you mentioned those 19 homers. Uh, I mean, 14 strikeouts per nine as a pitcher. The ERA wasn't great, but, you know, come on. It's college ERA. Right. We'll see what the Orioles can do with him. But I wouldn't be surprised if maybe they start him out at pitcher and things don't go so well. And the the good thing is he has something to fall back on. So if things don't go for well for him as a pitcher on the mound, guess what? He can, you know, maybe try him out as a, as a hitter for a couple seasons and see what that does for yeah, his career. Yeah, it's interesting because, like you said, you... It's, it's hard enough to develop your skills in one facet to yes. get to the major league level, especially when we're talking about a guy who was selected in the third round. So it's not like he's a surefire, you know, he's going to be on the fast track to the pros. Right. And I, I just wonder, does he view himself as a two-way guy? What's his preference? And maybe we'll get a chance to talk to him soon about it. They also selected a guy out of Richmond who has some two-way potential later on in the draft. So I don't know. Drafting two-way players is really interesting because you wonder – with Otani, has that spiked recently? But then you think about it and you're like, why should it spike? Because Otani is such an <laughs> exception to everyone else yeah. that you can't base any models or analytics on what Shohei Otani is doing. I don't think there was a rush of two-way players after Babe Ruth. No. Uh, <laughs> you know, converted to a <laughs> We weren't alive then, but I'm yeah, guessing. I'm yeah. guessing, yeah. Uh, also, not just a two-way player, two-sport, too. He I know, to play yeah. quarterback at Oklahoma State, so... We know the arm is there, obviously. Right. Um, so it, it, his position is third base. So he's got a good arm from third. Doesn't appear to be fast enough. I think he only had a 40 speed. So the arm probably couldn't play in the outfield. The arm could play. The speed couldn't play in the outfield. Doesn't quite have the ability to do that. But we've seen Kobe Mayo with a rocket arm over at third. If they do convert him to a position player, or if they decide to throw him in the field every now and again, I'll be intrigued to see him at third. Yeah, I feel like he's going to be mostly a pitcher also because, I mean, Brad Selick said it, but also yeah, yeah. he, he had, it's not like he's a polished pitcher right now, right. which is to be expected because he's a college guy that was doing both, but he was a reliever. You have to stretch him out. He seems to have a lot of great stuff, but the control is kind of an issue and that's where they need to focus on. They need to develop his secondary pitches a little bit more. The fastball is what really pops off, and that's something I've noticed diving into these particular pitchers, which is the case for a lot of pitchers that are getting drafted, is they have the velocity, but you need to harness the secondary pitches. You need to harness the stuff a little bit more, and the Orioles have selected a couple pitchers here that have very strong fastball numbers, and even Jared Beck, who we can talk about, is the, the seven-foot pitcher that... Yeah. Through a lot of uh, publicity when he was selected because no seven-footer has ever appeared in a major league game, but he could be the first. And with him, Brad Sela talked about how his numbers spiked a ton velocity-wise. He was a high 80s guy with a fastball, then it went to mid-90s all of a sudden like a year, and that popped off the page at them. So it's now going to be about harnessing those secondary pitches for a lot of these guys. And just because McLean is not a super refined, polished pitcher... I feel like you have to dedicate a good amount of time to developing him as a pitcher. 
that it's hard for me to see him being a two-way player down the road. But who knows? Yeah, speaking of Beck, too, I do want to talk about the 13th rounder because yeah. uh, seven feet tall is, is pretty rare. And I, I think there's a, there's obviously a few reasons why we haven't seen a seven-footer in the big leagues. One, because I think a lot of those kids end up playing basketball. Yeah. Two, there are so few seven-footers in real life. <laughs> right. Like walking the face of the earth. Uh, but three, also, I think for these especially tall pitchers, it's difficult from what I've heard... I'm not tall. I'm not a pitcher. Yeah. To get the mechanics down because you have so many pieces involved there to be able to get the ball to the plate and to sync them all up is very difficult. We've seen tall pitchers before. We see Felix Bautista, six foot eight on the mound, have a lot of success. We see Tyler Wells, Tyler Wells yeah. around the same size have success on the mound, but it is a little bit more rare. So that is a whole different ballgame. Developing a guy who is seven feet tall, you're talking about not just his his arsenal, not just his velocity, but how do you manage the kind of mechanics on a guy who is that big? Yeah, it's it's going to be fascinating to see. I think they've done a good job at identifying pitchers that have higher ceilings, and yeah. they've stayed true to their strategy. One thing that I think is a little bit misleading when you read about how this is such a pitcher-heavy draft for the Orioles They've done this. I feel like they've gone on runs of pitchers like a lot of teams, day yes. two, day three, in previous drafts. The difference is taking McLean, who is the highest they've ever taken a potential pitcher, taking five in the first ten rounds. They had four pitchers in the first ten rounds of the previous three drafts combined, right. Right. and then they took five in the first ten rounds this go-around. They had a couple extra picks when you throw in the competitive balance round picks, but still, they definitely made more of an emphasis to go after pitchers earlier. And like you said, Paul, I think we're transitioning out of an era and into a new one. Not to say that, I mean, it's going to be a while before we see Jackson Holiday potentially playing for the Orioles, right? right? It's still going to be a lot of content tracking these guys and a lot of focus on how they're building to the minor leagues. But we're getting to a point now where next draft and the draft after that I think we could see them take pitchers earlier, and I also think we could see them draft maybe for need a little bit more and draft based on ceiling and take riskier picks and maybe draft a guy that they might have less of a chance of signing, but they like his tools. So it's fun that we've gotten to this point, and it's just a new era maybe for the draft. And the question also becomes about catchers because yep. so often anytime – I remember last year we were talking about the Orioles maybe taking Henry Davis if he fell to them, and would they really take a catcher at that point because they already have Adley Rutschman. I think we're at the point where Adley Rutschman is as advertised. They're not going to get rid of Adley Rutschman. He's going to be their catcher for a long time. <laughs> yep. But that backup catcher spot, you look beyond Adley Rutschman in their farm system, they don't have a ton of depth. They've got a Creed Willems who they drafted last year and signed over slot, but he's had so-so numbers, and there's not a whole lot of positivity or you know there's not too much expectation for a guy who's drafted as late as he was I think he was an eight to ten round pick yeah so there, that could be a need going forward and you are going to need to back up Adley Rutschman at some point they'll probably address it you know Robinson Torinos is at, at for the short term he's a impending free agent they'll probably address it short term but they did take a catcher on day mm -hmm. two Fairly early out of Texas. I believe it's pronounced Silas Ardoin. Yeah. Um, Son of a former Oriole yes. as well. Yep. So uh, so he's he is a defensive first catcher from Texas, and that might be what you need from a backup catcher going forward for Adley Rutschman. Again, years away from the big leagues, but maybe we'll start to see what they prefer in a backup 
to Adley and w- what they prefer they think can be a good complement to their superstar. Yeah. All right, well, that'll put a bow on our draft coverage. Bittersweet, again, that it's over because it's so much fun covering the draft every year and another great draft for the Orioles. I think we're very excited about it. You will be back with Brendan Mortensen later on this week to get ready for the trade deadline. It, it never stops. We're right it into the stop. trade deadline at this point. So be sure to subscribe to the Mass and All Access Orioles podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on all your favorite podcast platforms. You will be back with Brendan talking trade deadline. Paul and Brendan will have you guys later in the week. So also follow us on YouTube. If you subscribe to us on YouTube, you can get notified whenever we go live. And thanks to Amy Jennings for producing this podcast. We'll talk to you next time on the Masson All Access Podcast. 